Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Haybig. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Paula Mudo, who is going to be telling us about her answer to the age-old question of, when I stop taking insurance and when I opt out of Medicare, how do I put food on the table while my direct care practice is growing? She started a very innovative company called UberDoc and has grown it nationally. And so again, like I said, I get excited about everybody we get to talk to, but this is an episode where we really get to provide a solution to a problem that affects a lot of physicians out there who might be addicted to their paycheck and can't find the light on the way out, know they need to make a change. And so now we're actually providing solutions to go along with the belief and 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 really the the adherence to the direct care cause. So, Dr. Mudo, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Now, your company UberDoc, uh, you're doing some very interesting stuff. And and just to hit it, hit the nail on the head here and get out of the gates quickly. Whenever we are helping physicians start up, the vast majority of them say, hey, this is great. If I get pre-sold, you know, 50 memberships and then have to grow from there, I'm still not making as much money as I did before, even though I hated my hospital position. Are there any options for me as a direct care provider or direct care physician? Once I opt out of Medicare, can I do any telemedicine? Is there any other supplemental income sources for me? And a lot of the times we say, yeah, maybe we'll look into some, but it seems like you might have an answer for those people. Well, I think we might. Uh, and I say that only because the world's changed, right? Um, and medicine started, you know, so many years ago it was your practice and your patients and, um, and you had a nice uh, file cabinet with all of their records and you followed those patients from uh, especially the primary care doctors would follow them through their whole life cycle. And when they were sick, they attended them in the hospital. And then when they were dying, they attended the family oftentimes at home. Um, our system kind of it became decentralized in many ways, right? The doctor now is relegated only to the office. When the patient is very sick, a group of other doctors take care of those patients. And those doctors are, uh, work in a hospital, which means they work for the hospital. So now we've begun to shift the accountability. The patient is now no longer paying the doctor. The patient is paying the hospital. The hospital pays the doctor. And the doctor is taking one farther step away from that equation. And so then doctors in their offices, I don't have to go into it. We all know all the market forces that are against doctors in general. Um, not just doctors that work in hospitals, but doctors that work for themselves and doctors that work, period. Um, medicine has been under an onslaught of miscommunication and misunderstandings um, that has put a lot of doctors um, economically in tough positions where they have been forced to, whether it's access to electronic records or access to a network or access to insurance companies, that they've had to, to lose more and more of that autonomy and, again, stepping another step away from the patient. And every single time we step away from our patient, we, we put a distance between us that's hard to connect. So technology comes along and can change the equation. Everything in our life, you can push a button and get it at your doorstep, right? You can push a button and see any movie you want on television now, right? You can push a button and get your favorite food delivered to your door. Why is it that you cannot push a button and get really good quality healthcare to connect to your doctor? 
why is that that can happen? We carry beepers. We are trained to be available to our patients 24-7. Why is it the patient can't get to us except through an emergency, right? Except through a convoluted process. Can't even get through a phone tree that goes in circles. Why is that? So, so here we are in faced with this untenable situation. 52% of physicians are burnt out. We lose so many doctors in their prime. I say prime because they're experienced, they're well-trained. It takes them 30 seconds to eyeball something and know the answer. Yet those are the very doctors we are losing in this whole process. We're training a, a whole level of inexperienced mid-level providers coming on the other side of things. And like with everyone with less training, we'll rely on technology more heavily, we'll rely on extra testing more heavily. And so the costs are ballooning and the patients are getting delayed. And we know this because our outcomes are, are lower. So faced with all of this, can a doctor reinvent themselves and be in front of the patient again? So UberDoc was started as a way for a patient and a doctor to connect in an office outside insurance, just straight fast pass to a specialist. Specialists began to expand beyond surgical specialists to medical specialists to primary care specialists, internal medicine, family practice. They are specialists. We are all specialists. There are not many of us where there's just under a million of us in this country. A lot of us are old and people are, are retiring. So we are a very small group of people serving a very large population. So knowing that the demand is high and knowing that supply is low, then why can't we use technology to break away some of those barriers and allow doctors and patients to connect through a model that's efficient, transparent, and where the payment is not siphoned off between into insurers and into all these employers. Why can't we put doctors back in the driver's seat to connect to patients and do what they do best? And that's what our model is. It started off as in as in-person visit. Now we've included telemedicine and now we've created the concept of a stay-at-home doctor. The doctors that can connect directly to patients and, and have direct payment to the physician. Our model's always been a direct pay, no middleman model. And that's who we are. <laughs> I love it. It's all doctors are specialists. Um, you said that yes, and it's yeah. just like, it's one of those moments where you hear somebody say something and like instantly the clouds part. You're like, wow, that is really profound. The insurance companies call us that. So I didn't make that up. We've just <laughs> forgotten that word. I think so. But I, even in medical schools and residency programs, people are most actively discouraged from going into primary care or into family medicine. And what you said just rings so true to that, that even what we consider to be GPs are very specialized in the kind of care that they're able to provide. So, you know, I, I hope everybody out there listening can take that one to heart. You don't have to be a, a super subspecialized surgeon to, you know, call yourself a, a specialist. I love that. I, I had to give you a special call out. I could say it's the, the over 35 crowd too, <laughs> because it takes a really long time to be a doctor and to train and finish training and everything else. So, um, as I joke about everybody on our platform is old. Well, it, it, I mean, you can't have any 20 something on our platform. It just doesn't, nobody, unless you've got a super genius Doogie Howser, no one can actually become an Uber doctor unless they're over 30. So you have a little <laughs> gap. You have the Doogie Housers who are less than 20 years old. And then you have the, you know, I guess the regular people, the regular smart people who became doctors uh, over 35 on there. Uh, it goes back to the old adage that, you know, it takes 10,000 hours of experience to really become an expert at something. And that's a lot of hours, you know, dedicating a life. It is. Uh, and, I, it. and I have residents. Um, I have both surgical residents now in my life and I've had family practice residents for 20 years. And 
And over the time, you know, these kids are super smart. And a lot of them say, oh, I, you know, I, before I went to medical school, I spent like six years uh, teaching English in like, you know, a poor suburb of somewhere or even maybe in Africa. And I look at them and I said, oh my gosh, so at 21, you were teaching. I'm like at 21, maybe 23, I was examining patients. I'm like, I, you know, I, in the old days, you went from college to medical school. And by the time you hit your second or third year, you were in the hospital and you didn't turn back. And, and so then I thought, wow, I have already, by the time I was 29, I'd seen thousands of patients. And so here's somebody who's just beginning, right? They're just starting their residency. They have, like you said, they don't, aren't even close to those 10,000 hours of patient care. And, and despite the fact that medicine is considered so high tech, it's really a very much of an art. And it's a job. It's a vocation. The more you see of something, the better you get. Um, they don't just call look it at the, COVID back in March a year ago till, till today, the mortality rates, the way doctors treat, the way people can identify it's so different because you've seen a lot more of it after a 365 days than you did when it first started. Yeah. And you know, like you said, it's an art. It, it's kind of the, uh, the intersection between art and science. And as we know that there are very few things that are settled in the scientific community these days. There's a lot of theories out there, but science is always evolving. That's where it's designed to do. But they don't call it the practice of medicine for, you know, for no reason whatsoever. It always we need to practice. a little bit more. <laughs> because we need to practice. And, and I want to say that, you know, it takes, a. they always say it takes many years to train a doctor, Right that the doctor puts in a lot of time and what a shame that the doctor, you know, went through all that training and then decided to drop out and join like industry or whatever. But people forget how much the system invests in us. All of the patients that literally laid down their lives oftentimes or, bar or body parts for us to become the skilled people that we are, the system invests a tremendous amount in the physicians. And so that's why the system should recognize what a precious resource we are. And people forget that. They think we can be replaced by a robot or, a, you know, or a virtual care, but actually you can't, <laughs> um, you know, because ultimately the amount that you've invested in this workforce needs to be appreciated. Do you feel like a lot of hospital systems and then the health industry in general recognizes how oh, no, valuable physicians are? No, physicians have been sidelined because we are replaceable. Uh, we're not brandable. Um, you know, think about a, the world's experts. Like I think about like some surgeons that really created departments and changed the way we practice and real leaders. Um, and they would be part of an institution. And you'd go to that institution because you were going to that skilled person. Well, now that skilled person leaves the institution and goes somewhere else or retires the institution still brands itself. Instead of the doctor, they brand the department. Mm -hmm. and, and this shift from the, the individual to the institution has occurred over the last decade or two because it's a, it's, a, it's a business model, right? Well, you know, we might have had that really good doctor here, but now they're retired, but that's okay because we want the business, right? Now we have the business. And sometimes they've built the department and it remains, but other times they really haven't. The department simply picks up and moves to another institution. Mm -hmm. And yet they don't, that's not transparent to the patients because it becomes a marketing. So, so I think that because the business model creeps into medicine and people think it is a business model, that we oftentimes the doctors are inconvenient in that model, right? We're inconvenient. We're just the people that have to kind of be there to make it happen, but we're not that important because they feel we're replaceable. <laughs> 
it's the commoditization of physicians. It's a theme that we've talked about and touched upon, yep. you know, in numerous previous episodes. And it's a theme that we touch upon every single day at Freedom Health Works that not everybody wearing a white coat and wearing a stethoscope is the same. And, you know, going back to what you said about all physicians are specialists. I mean, that just, that one stuck with me. That hit me in the core. You know, it, it really did. And to be able, and it's not just marketing and branding, but it's it's like physicians, once they get out of residency and they, and they you know, some cases, I hate to say this, but they actually survive medical school and residency and they don't drop out before hitting 30, they are almost beaten down and kind of like an obedient pet. They don't want to speak up. They're terrified of a hospital system. They're terrified of hospital administrations. And they just keep their heads down rather than speaking up about any type of, you know, burnout issues and, you know, emotional uh, abuse at some points in time. And just like, how did it come to this? Well, I think that it, well, we, there are many reasons why it came to this. Um, and again, it's, it has to do with that kind of hierarchical model of bi the big business world. And and the doctors kind of brought it upon ourselves a little bit too, because when the electronic records and when there was competition and with the expansion of the ACA, there was a bit of a land grab. So doctors were kind of like um, aligning themselves with institutions. You know, they were choosing teams, choosing sides. Um, and and um, and in my community, especially, uh, we had two hospitals, uh, two miles apart. Uh, one was an independent kind of inner city hospital, always kind of struggling for some state aid and so forth. And uh, and the other one was one that was a Catholic hospital that went and got purchased by a for-profit group. So you had that in the same community. The doctors were then split between the two hospitals. But as specialists, there weren't many surgeons, so you had to kind of cover both hospitals. Um, and and your patients would, would, wherever the ambulance took them, they were two miles apart. Um, but it became so competitive between these institutions that they became it if you weren't you know primarily associated with one hospital you you were economically penalized in other words they put you out of network and they made your patients pay more and i kept thinking that's just unconscionable uh, the ceos of the hospitals should have been held responsible because what your hospitals are public trusts you don't say that the fires my fire station's better than yours and you don't ever say that you're not going to let lend your firefighters to the town next door because they're out of network mm. and this is what it happens all over the country where you have these hospitals that become so competitive and they think that we're going to just draw walls around us and moats around us and keep patients in but what they're really doing is keep people out and they mess with the outcomes because you can't have, you know, and you have one trauma surgeon covering two hospitals and now you're down to like three, you know, instead of 10 surgeons covering both hospitals, you're down to three covering each. That's not a safe situation. You know, so we have been sitting back. Um, you're right. You can't object because there's no channel for us to complain. The chief medical officers are, are, are employed by the administration, so they don't represent the doctors. Uh, the chief of medicine and the chief of surgery, they are, um, we call them affectionately bobbleheads, right? Here they sit there, <laughs> they sit there and just agree and, and they try and I give them credit for trying, but it's a very, very difficult situation, but I call it public safety. But I think we've come full circle because technology will solve all of these issues and make a lot of this irrelevant. Telemedicine is here. The cancer pill is here. I operate out of my office, something I used to do in the operating room. There's so many things we can do now for our patients that don't require the giant system anymore to make it happen. And and I think that that's really the what's going to impact the change. 
like you said, it's a miracle in itself that now patients can talk directly to physicians. So it's all come full, full circle it's from cool, decades, right? decades ago where, you know, the town doctor came in, showed up with his uh, little black bag and came in your house. And now we fast forward and physicians are finally breaking through the walls or I don't know what they had before instead of like giving patients their actual numbers. We work with a ton of physicians who just give people their cell phone numbers, their office number, and it's like, call me, text me, get a hold of me. It's more efficient. It's more, rather than call my answering service and have them, you know, call, you know, I mean, sometimes you don't want your phone number everywhere, but, um, but you know, the, but the emergency room would call you all the time. I mean, they, they didn't have any problem bothering you 24-7. One of the interesting things about where we're at is that when we started UberDoc, it was about find the doctor who's nearby and available. Right. In other words, we were trying to, to transcend the networks, transcend the restriction and just find why go 45 miles when there's a very good doctor two miles away that can take care of you. Mm -hmm. So that's where UberDoc really started. The word access now changes right nearby and available could be nearby. It could be now somebody that could be available via a telemedicine. I still believe the best care is local. You know, you always want to make sure that that doctor who sees you via telemedicine could also potentially see you in person if that specialty existed or if that, you know, if, the, if it made sense. But I think that um, with digital healthcare, we can transcend a lot of these obst obstacles. We can decrease the overhead for doctors uh, because they, they can see patients, uh, you know, even in my own surgical practice, I can see post-ops nicely um, without having to bring my whole office in. Um, you know, so you can save on overhead at the same time, you can leave room in your waiting room for patients that really need to be seen, you know, that you need to lay your hands on. Uh, medicine is still a contact sport. We can't forget that. <laughs> yeah, it is very much a contact sport. Uh, but communication is the hallmark for medicine. And with all of these changes in the last decade or so, communication has been has been deemed irrelevant. You can communicate through an electronic record. No, you can't. You can't tell the patient's story with with just checking boxes. Patients don't shoehorn into these narratives. You have to tell the story of the patient that they tell you. That's very much part of medicine. Um, so I think uh, I'm thrilled with digital healthcare because I think this is a fantastic opportunity for doctors. Absolutely. I want to spend a little bit more time, you know, diving into UberDoc and the platform. We're going to take a quick break, hear back from some of our amazing sponsors here on Healthcare Americana, and we'll be right back after this message. Healthcare can be complex. If you're managing a chronic or life-threatening illness, Patients Rising is here for you. We built the Patients Rising Concierge to help you navigate stressful health decisions and get the support you deserve. You will find personalized support by calling, emailing, or visiting our website. Our team is standing by to help with your unique situation. Find the help you need today at patientsrisingconcierge.org. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. 
everybody. Welcome back once again to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, talking today with Dr. Paula Muto. And we're talking about UberDoc. And, and, and you know, you mentioned earlier that all doctors are specialists. And I got to give you credit. You're, you're just dropping some gems out there. You know, medicine is a, it's a contact sport. And so I look at this and we talk to a lot of doctors who say, well, I just want to do virtual care. I just want to do telemed. And we say, that's okay. But in our purview, Telemedicine, the technology capabilities are coming out of it, is a wonderful, incredibly needed supplement to care. It's not a replacement. Would you disagree or agree with that statement? I think that medical care, again, medicine at its core is about the connection and it's about touching a patient and understanding their physiology. So yes, I think that it, it is a tool to give a doctor a virtual examining room on top of their regular examinations. However, there are some physicians that actually connects very nicely through a telemedicine model. And it might be more impactful. Um, I think of behavioral health, psychiatrists. Psychiatry, finding a patient in the comfort of their home, um, rather than to get out of, the, get out of their, where they're at, finding them at that moment of crisis. There's been good data to show that psychiatry with a telemedicine model is extremely effective. I think that there are some specialties that are very underpopulated, like say, for example, rheumatology. Rheumatology, there's like maybe 4,000 rheumatologists and there are 8 million people with gout. Um, you know, so you have a complex condition and you can't get into a rheumatologist. It takes you like half a year to get in um, in any places to be able to take people with tremendous expertise and who and these patients have been worked up well by their primaries and they need to just get that second opinion through someone who's really going to take a good history from them. And because they've seen 10,000 of these patients in the last six months, they might have a better answer for them. That those are, those are opportunities where, again, the continuity of care occurs at the local level with their family doctor or whoever that they're seeing, but that second opinion can be a telemedicine opinion. I think that in terms of primary care uh, with their patients, I think people still need to see somebody. I think it's important to take shoes and socks off, look at feet. I'm a vascular surgeon. I want everybody's legs looked at. I also do general surgery. I want everybody's breast examined. I fight with my residents all the time. My family practice residents who tell me, Dr. Muto, you know, um, so, you know, it's not cost effective to do, you don't have to do a breast exam. It's like, really? You don't, <laughs> you're just going to rely on an image, right? That, and it's like, and you don't think that there's at all any operator dependence on images. You just think you wave a magic wand and every, every mammogram is the same or every ultrasound is the same or every CAT scan is the same. So there is that sort of dependency in some of the younger doctors to depend on technology. There is nothing more important than the first words out of a patient's mouth. The chief complaint, 95% of the time will tell you what's wrong with the patient. Um, and that is not, I didn't make that up. That's been for centuries. <laughs> um, and um, so I, I think that we have to be careful when we throw digital medicine as a replacement of what I would consider real medicine and, and good care, because I think it's a tool that doctors would use in the, in the right circumstances. Um, that being said, there's a, a lot of stuff out in the marketplace to consumers, you know, call up and talk to me and I'll give you, you know, a prescription for your erectile dysfunction or for, you know, an anxiety pill. And I think that's not where telemedicine needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, telemedicine needs to be in the hands of the end user. The end user are the physicians and it's a wonderful tool. And if the doctors control this tool and not get dictated to by other, you know, like electronic records, by technology, if we control this and we evolve this 
and we develop this, it'll be a fantastic addition to our practices and a source of revenue as well. When a resident says it's not cost effective to do this type of exam, and, and you mentioned this, <laughs> you know, put yourself in the patients and be like, well, what the heck are you talking about? Like, what do you mean there might be an issue here that you're not going to investigate <laughs> further, right? Well, I have to say that a lot of the residents, you know, go before they become in medical school, they, they get their MPH, right? They get their master's in public. So they come into you with an MD and an MPH. And I always say they're instantly in conflict, inner conflict immediately, because they'll say, well, Dr. Mino, you have to do like, you have to treat eight patients before, you know, before two are, are going to benefit. So I said, okay, come into my examining room. Which one are you not going to treat? I said, patients don't come to you saying I'm, I'm number nine. You know, <laughs> they, they, so they, it's, it's, it's hard. It's confusing. I keep telling them public health, you're treating, you know, one or two individuals on the basis of the benefit to everyone, you know, like, you know, how many patients do you have to vaccinate to benefit the population? But medicine is the reverse. You take all that information out there and you apply it to that single patient in front of you. Um, that's your responsibility is that patient, not the, not the population. And I think we tend to get confused with that often. So I tease my residents quite a bit when I say, which examining room are we not going to open the door today <laughs> and say, it's, sorry. It, it's very profound. And, and, you know, you're seeing in real world applications because, and this is one of the problems I have with population health in general is that, you know, on the topic of colon cancer. So I'm in my mid thirties and while the you know national guidelines are saying I'm not at risk for it. Last time I looked, men in their 30s have the fastest growing rate of colon cancers out there, yet we're not scheduled to get exam for another 10, 15 years. And so something like that, when you stop treating people as an individual, looking at a case by case and just try to do this one size blanket, uh, one size fits all approach, it makes you scratch your head a little bit, like you were saying, thinking, well, wait a minute. So when guidelines say that, you know, men in their 40s and 50s are, should be getting colonoscopies, yet men in their 30s are seeing more and more occurrences of colon cancer, to me, there's a big disconnect between what we're seeing, you know, at the, at the front lines of medicine versus what these guidelines are saying from a population health standpoint. Right. And at the end of the day, it's, for me, it's the patient's comfort level, right? I mean, if you are concerned and you have a valid concern, then you, there's nothing that should stop you. From, from getting that. Now, what stops you is does insurance cover it? Well, you know, nowadays, if you have a transparent model and you're able to find out what the price of it is, there should be access to cancer screening that is outside insurance. In fact, most cancer screening could be outside insurance. I mean, a mammogram doesn't cost much. Um, we're looking at a model now of creating a complete vertical for lung cancer screening, for colon cancer screening, and for breast cancer screening through a cash model through a teleradiology model, getting a mammogram, get, you know, getting it read immediately through a radiologist and having it all then loaded onto your phone and off you go. Um, there's no reason to have any waiting time, right, with technology. The only complication comes in if you need to have the insurance card, you need to have the bill go through, um, you know, mammography is not paid very much. So they have to kind of go through a bunch of, of ways to, to kind of make sure that the payment is there. I mean, there's just too many complications with this. So colonoscopy, you know, or, or Cologuard or one of those screening tools, those are all things that are available for colon cancer screening. Um, I think technology, again, will just like Every time, anytime technology improves, the price comes down. Always, right? We all had those big screen TVs, and now you, they, you get a monitor for free. So every technology will invariably lower the cost. So we need to just embrace the technology and not worry so much because the cost will come down with it. 
And again, when it's utilized properly by the professionals, I'm a big, huge believer in patient choice. Mm-hmm. I think patients should have access to their records. I think they should hold their records. I don't think that any institution or office or, you know, or a company should have a portal that you have to have 15 passwords to get to. I think that's crazy. I think patients have right to their record. I think patients have right to choose. Um, if you don't want a colonoscopy at 50, you have that right as well. Nothing is as sacred as your own body. And the only right to choose that we protect is women's right over their wounds. Well, what about your right over your colon? <laughs> I think everybody should have a right over their bodies. I mean, frankly, I say, why do we stop at a woman's womb? <laughs> Shouldn't we like think about other bodies? Um, you know, so, so I do think that our system takes away a lot of choice on the patient side. Again, as we've, we've created that separation between doctor and patient, either way, patients also, as well as doctors, have been pushed to the periphery of the priority, mm-hmm. which is weird because we're, we're what make up medicine. The fifth, of the, uh, fifth of our country's economy is on the interaction between one patient and one physician. Uh, so there's a, it's a big complex web that we've, that we've woven. So focusing now on your work with UberDoc, and we touched upon it when we first started talking about, you know, it's a platform for really any type of physician, whether you deal with Medicare or in the case of so many direct care physicians out there, you don't have to deal with, with Medicare and still use your, your platform, which really distinguishes UberDoc from any other type of telehealth or supplemental income option out there for physicians. So give us a quick synopsis. How are you able to do that when so many others either don't want to or looked at and said, yeah, I'm not really going to do it. (laughs) Again, our model was created by physicians, right? For their patients, nurses, physicians, people in in, in, uh, electronic uh, technology, uh, people, billers, managed care experts, I mean, literally frontline people that said, wow, this system really doesn't work, let's make it easy. So we built it for the workflow, for how a patient interacts with the doctor. Why other people hadn't thought of this is because why would you think of it? Why would you want to increase your access and decrease your cost? That actually is counterintuitive to the system. The system actually goes the other way around. Let's make it harder to get to the top of the, you know, into the, and, and let's charge a lot more. Um, so by reversing that equation is what made us kind of different. And also being um, a business person, a business mind, I thought, well, I know doctors. I come from a whole family of surgeons. My dad, I was brought up with a great thoracic surgeon. My dad, my uh, brother's a, a surgeon. My married a surgeon. I have two uncles that were surgeons. So you understand how doctors think. And doctors do not value themselves by money. They value themselves by volume. The doctor that has a waiting room filled with loyal patients is the currency for that physician. It does translate into economic success as well. As my father always said, if you just take good care of the patient, you will be successful. (laughs) Period. Your happy patient means they'll tell other patients. Happy doctor means, you know, no complications. You will be happy, right? Just take good care of the patient. Um, so it's just like, you know, I hate to say like a restaurant, you serve good food, people come. <laughs> it's as simple as that. So doctors value themselves on volume. So knowing that we could take the price down to a point where it was cash. So there wasn't any, any cost in getting that patient, right? We Uber doc takes the, on the cost of marketing to the patient. And then the doctor gets, gains the patient. Uber doc is just the, the, the glue. And we're, the, and we're a transactional model. So doctors don't even pay to be on UberDoc. Mm-hmm. Um, if they can pay if they need telemedicine or if they need some other type of service that we provide. 
But if they have a, their own telemedicine platform that they're happy with, they can even bring that address onto our platform as their office location. So, so we actually offer this to our physicians free of charge who want to be able to build this practice. We feel so strongly that it really doesn't matter if I have one or two seats in everybody's waiting room, virtual or otherwise, UberDoc does just fine. So our devious model is to create this price transparency, create this network of doctors all over the country who are like an army standing up for the patient. Is there any reason why a physician practicing direct uh, primary care, direct pay care, direct patient care, whatever you want to call it, who has opted out of Medicare and still in the startup process growing their patient panel, is there any reason why they wouldn't join your platform? No, we, we try to make it frictionless. We made it so there isn't any reason. It's not why join your product, it's why not, right? Why not? And we are in, in at the beginning stages too, but in terms of the sense that we do, we are national, we have close to 4,000 doctors, but how many patients know about UberDoc? Mm-hmm. But how many patients, once they hear about it, will know about UberDoc? <laughs> that's, that's the joke. We were on television once very early on. We only had 45 specialists, surgical specialists, and the platform flooded. So I like, yeah, I knew this was going to work. Uh, the hardest part is to, when you build something, you want to make sure you have availability, right? You don't want people seeking appointments. And that's what we're finding now. Patients keep coming to us and say, I want a gastroenterologist in this Texas. And we don't have one there. Or I want a primary care in like Oklahoma. We don't have one there, but we can get one. I mean, it's like, sure, why not, right? Why? That's the best part. And I'll have to say that the cool thing about this network, there's a lot of cool things about the network, is that doctors of like specialties come together, which is cool. I like to think of it as like the 21st century doctor's lounge, right? We don't have a doctor's lounge anymore, right? We don't get to talk with each other about our patients because we're so detached. But this is really cool. This network of UberDoc has created this new network where all the pulmonologists can talk together and all the surgeons can get together and share patients as well. The other exciting parts about UberDoc are that we are, um, you know, chronic care model. There's a lot of um, nursing homes and chronic care facilities that don't like to transport patients and it's really costly. So they're looking at our model saying, hey, wait a minute, what if we just got an Uber doctor to do a telemedicine visit? Mm-hmm. Like the simplest thing, like it doesn't sound interesting. Like, wow, what? think about that through a cash model, a, a chronic care facility that spends thousands of dollars trying to get consultations, get patients out to get their post-op checks. What if you just did it through a cash model? Really intriguing, right? Yeah, it's like the modern day house call is what is what and really modern day house call and nursing homes are really struggling, right? They they don't have enough money on a good day. And so to be able to improve care, improve access, and at the same time just simplify it outside of restrictions. So so we have a lot of partnerships. Of course, you know, international consultation as well. But honestly, any doctor out there who wants to give us a try, they're welcome to the platform. It's easy to join. And then we try hard to get our doctors patients. And that is my goal for the next few months is to get UberDoc's name out there to the patients so they know that there's a choice. And that's why we, we want our community to be built as large as possible. And it's just all about who, who do you work for? You don't work for UberDoc. Right. Um, the patient pays you. You work for the patient. It's that simple, right? It really, it really is that simple. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, and, and, and you pay, patients use your health savings account. And, and, and you remember, younger generation with mo- increased mobility, a lot of the, like the millennials don't don't have primary cares, right? They they have primary care a la carte. 
That's why they go to a walk-in, right? Well, wouldn't it be nice if they could just walk into one of their specialists, right? And, and, and then so, so the concept of that one-time payment, one-time visit, um, you know, a la carte, you know, yes, we want people to build practices, but the patients themselves may not be people who are going to be attached to one doctor at a time. Sure. That's why we like our model because it's, it's very flexible. It's access and convenience, you know, those two two hallmarks of what this entire cash movement really is and excellent care too. Let's not discount that. And so, excellent. you know, one last question for you, and this is kind of a fun one. In your perfect world, and you describe this, and we use the word telemedicine a lot. And to me, I've never understood where that vocabulary comes from because to me, telemedicine is just an easier way to talk to your medical care physician and provider where in the world and what do we do with a term like that? You know, I, I don't, when I do my taxes, I don't actually meet with face-to-face with my accountant, but I don't say, hey, I followed my taxes via teleaccounting this year. <laughs> That's a great question because, you know, in all honesty, when I started UberDoc, I used to pitch it like, well, because we're, we can't, like, surgeons can't do telemedicine, right? We have to touch our patients. That's, that's how I was always thinking, like telemedicine is something that the you know, doctors don't need to touch you. As I learned more about what real telemedicine is, like real telehealth is that intimate connection, privately, visual, eye-to-eye contact, very important. It's very, very similar to taking a good history from a patient. Telephone calls have been part of our responsibility as a physician forever. You call me because you're having pain after I took out your gallbladder, or you're calling me because you're, you know, your your family member is having more pain in their leg. I, I answer that call. I don't monetize that call. Why don't I monetize it? Because I'm your doc. I'm not going to run to my computer and document that. Oh, well, look, I did something. So I worry a little bit that a lot of the telemedicine that's happening in this country right now is is monetizing that phone call. And, you know, it's just say like, okay, every 91 days, I'm going to call my patient and don't care for it. Um, and I think that that probably isn't the best use. That isn't really what telehealth is about. However, um, you know, people say, well, my patient's elderly and it's a phone call. I understand that. But what's the purpose of the check? If it's because I read your EKG, which just came through the cloud from your, on, you know, from your home monitor, and I'm noticing that there's a problem and I need to call you and say, but wait a minute, now that's telemedicine. But if I'm just calling you to say, hey, how are you today? I'm not sure we should monetize that because I think that's a race to the bottom that the doctors will get penalized on. And we'll throw out the more important parts of telemedicine, which need to continue to exist. When you do episodic care like that, um, especially just what you're kind of talking about is calling somebody up, seeing how they're doing, just being a nice person, uh, showing you, you actually care about somebody who might be vulnerable. That's why we love the, the membership model, because there are no barriers for that transaction. And like you said at the beginning, where, you know, for whatever reason, we've built a financial incentive within healthcare that everything has to be in person. And you build up a ton of barriers to that when every time you walk into a doctor's office, you know, you're going to have to get your checkbook out at some point. And so that's why I love that membership aspect of it. And I'm not advocating for physicians just to start giving free care by any means, but there are better compensation models out there that actually benefit the patient. And so that's a big thing. When patients stop coming in for medical care, guess who's going to be hurting just as much as they are? And, you know, that's the people providing. That's exactly right. In our model, you know, our price point launched five years ago at $300 or four years ago, $300. 
which was above the Medicare. We brought it down to 250 this year because of the economy. We're still, again, above what America, Medicare allowable is. When we moved to telemedicine, we kept that price point. It was really important that 250 in-person telemedicine, same deal. You're getting that specialist. We did get a little pushback from some of our doctors who, um, some of our primary care doctors in certain parts of the country that thought 250 is going to be prohibitive for patients and that they weren't going to get. So we, we did launch a flexible model where you can drop your price, but not below 150. We're not a race to the bottom. This isn't a $39 phone call, right? That's not what this is about. So just to interject there, that's what you see from a lot of benefits um, community. They're saying, well, I can get a, uh, a televisit from, you know, some of the big boys out there that accept insurance for like five or $10 a visit. I'm thinking, yeah. oh, who in the world? $20 doctors. To do that? doctors are answering your phone for $20, right? So, yeah. but that's not what UberDoc is. So that's, UberDoc is not a one-off. It's not an allergic rhinitis call only. It's, these are specialists. We're, these are people who are going to talk about your diabetes or your hypertension, figure out your rheumatology, you know, your gout, um, you know, do a consultation for like a potential orthopedic whether it's in person or whether it's telemedicine, we felt that the UberDoc, the value of the UberDoc visit could be the same. And it was very important because there is parity between telemedicine and in-person care. And that's really what's changed in the last year. And that's why we hold to our price point. We hold to our brands and our, the quality of our doctors. We are a network of those under 1 million doctors out there. That's all we are. We are a very small workforce that's out there. And so that's why knowing the economics of it, supply and demand, doctors worked a long number of years. They should stand up for what they do. They're not there to gouge a patient, but they need to be fairly paid. It's like, you know, you deliver a baby, somebody gives you a goat. It is the absolute, like most, the most accountable honest relationship between a patient and a doctor. And medicine is a peer-to-peer economic relationship. It is not a corporate relationship. And when we try to shoehorn it into a corporate model, we fail every time. It's the all-important emphasizing that patient-doctor relationship. Yeah. That's what's going to make the difference. And that's what UberDoc was founded on. And telemedicine to me is a wonderful way. Again, we have a high dropout rates of women doctors drop out like 40%, six years out of training. Oh my gosh, the stay-at-home doctor, bring them back into digital health, bring telemedicine into their practice world, into these doctors that want to retire, keep them going. Uh, you know, you know, we have a dermatologist down in Florida who's like, he said, I can recognize a mole a mile away. It's like, we want you to, we want you to remain in practice. And he was afraid because he said, oh, I don't want to get close to COVID patients. It's like, you know what, I, we get that, but you still have high, high value. And, and so there's, again, doctors have skills. Doctors should be able to pedal their wares directly to the patient. There's no, nothing should stop that. And yes, we rely on the systems because yes, a surgeon, you need an operating room, but where does that operating room have to be? It could be your office because of technology. It could be a surgery center, outpatient ear placements, whoever thought. Now, 100% of patients are going home after their knees, right? Because of COVID, right? So COVID was this catalyst that kind of showed us, hey, wait a minute, system, wake up. Do we really have to do things this old fashioned way? Very well said. It kind of forced everybody to move 20 years in the future. And by no means would I, would I advocate that the healthcare industry is, is beyond other industries out there. But when you're stuck in 1999 in a 20-year advancement, okay, that's going to cover a lot of ground very, very quickly there. Well, Dr. Mudo, I, I appreciate you taking time to join us here. Wish you the best of luck. And once again, thanks for providing an option and a platform for a lot of physicians out there who are tired of running on the hamster wheel, tired of the rat race and saying, you know what, there's got to be a better way about this. And, and uh, you know, for anybody in the direct care world listening out there, certainly check out UberDocs. 
from what I know about you and, and about the platform, you know, it's one of, if not the only platform out there where direct care physicians can help supplement income while continuing to grow their practice the right way. So thanks for all you do. Thanks for joining us here. Thank you. It's been terrific. Once again, that's Dr. Paula Mudo, CEO, founder of UberDoc. I am your host, Christopher Habig. That's going to be it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. Big shout out to Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and Melissa Turpin for managing this wonderful podcast. Thanks for listening. At Green Imaging, we provide diagnostic imaging procedures that include MRIs, CT scans, and x-rays for half of the average price in a health plan. Most people don't realize that the most expensive place to get an MRI is right down the hall from the prescribing doctor. This is because 70% of doctors are now employed or subsidized by our hospital systems. When we get an imaging exam at a hospital-owned imaging facility, the cost of care is three to seven times more expensive than it is at an independent imaging facility. There is a better choice that can save you up to 65% or more. That choice is green imaging. In most hospitals, there are 16 administrators for every single doctor. This creates an unnecessary burden on the price tag. By removing this excess, green imaging provides diagnostic services typically at one third of the price or less. Check us out at greenimaging.net. Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs, and employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year, so shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing co-pays or deductibles. Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.org and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.